Welcome to the Probate Realtor Show, your one source for selling and buying real estate through trust and probate. Hear directly from the best attorneys and trusted advisors on how executors and administrators navigate the probate process in and out of court. Being a personal representative or successor trustee can be a daunting task, and often beneficiaries don't have a clear plan. Let us help you make the right decision for your clients, your family, and your legacy. And now, here's your host, the probate realtor himself, Matias Baker Mazzucci. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of our show. Today, we have the privilege of talking with Heather Glick Atala, who runs her own firm at Glick Atala Law. She's an estate planning attorney and also does corporate attorney law work for nonprofit organizations, which it's very fascinating. And she's the current president of the San Fernando Valley Bar Association. And I've known Heather for almost four years, a little bit over four years now, and she's a delight to be around. So Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So what we're going to be talking today is legacy and charitable giving, which are things that are very intertwined in, in both of your practices that, that, that you specialize in. So I, I really uh, look forward to, to discussing this topic with you. The first thing that I wanted to ask you, it's kind of a, um, I guess, uh, there's a little bit of a philosophy, a philosophical question, which is, you know, what does legacy mean to you? And what do you think it means to your clients? Yeah. So I think it's something to remember a person by, something that can carry on for generations to come. We spend our whole lives, you know, living day by day, but then then what happens? How do you want to be right. remembered? How, what's the impact that you want to make in the world that will continue on beyond your lifetime? That's that's to me and to many of my clients what legacy planning is. That makes total sense. That's that's great. Thank you for explaining that. Now, um what are some of the, you know, the difference, you know, when it comes to leaving a legacy, obviously people are, are keeping into account their family is one thing. And then another aspect would be, you know, charitable giving. Um, so some of the things that I, that, I, that I came across during my research were things like scholarship funds, you know, and like family foundations. So when somebody comes to you and they want to, um, you know, delve into the realm of giving back, um, how do you, what are some of the steps that they can, um, that you uh, take them through to, first of all, learn more about the process? And second, what are some of the things that, that you guide them to understand? Yeah. So I think um, charitable giving can look very different. And there are lots of different avenues. So I'm going to be touching on a few of them now. And okay. a lot of this will depend on how much the family wants to contribute and when they want to make these contributions. Okay. So obviously the easiest and simplest method of giving is just by writing a check to charity. You can, you can pick whatever charities you want to give to. You might be a recurring donor over several years, or you might work with a charity to establish mm -hmm. a program in your name. And it's just giving gifts directly to charity. Um, you can also set up something called a donor advised fund and a donor advised fund is kind of like having a little checking account at a charitable organization that's called a community foundation. Mm -hmm. And you can put in as much as you want into this donor that's short for DAF. DAF is mm -hmm. the short term for donor advised fund. Okay. So you, you establish your DAF and you can put as much money or as little money into it either now or when you pass away, you can have your DAF 
be one of the beneficiaries of your estate when you pass mm -hmm. away. And the beauty of a death is that there is little to no work that you as the donor need to do. You don't file a tax return. The money just sits there until you direct where it goes. Now, okay. DAF money can only go to other established public charities that are in good standing. But okay. you don't need to decide what charities are going to receive that money when you put the money into the DAF. Okay. You can decide at any time. You can say, all right, in January, we're going to give $10,000 to the Red Cross. And then maybe next year, we'll give another $10,000 to Beauty Bus Foundation, or, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever you decide to do. And uh, you get the tax right off the minute that you put the money into your death. Okay. So it's, and, and there's no liability. You don't have to have a board of directors. You don't have to have insurance. You don't need to worry about filing a tax return. It couldn't be easier. So you get all the benefits of, the, you know, you get the tax deductibility the, as, as if you were making a contribution directly to charity um, with the death, but you don't have the headache of having your own foundation. Um, now with a DAF, you could have kind of a little mini board of directors and you can work with the community foundation that holds your donor advised fund and have a kind of governing board that, that might include your children or other family members. And you can act kind of like you would normally if you did have your own foundation. You can decide um, as a team when you're gonna make contributions in what amounts and to whom. Um, so it's by far the easiest and most flexible and, and it's so easy to set up. You literally make a phone call. The, the, there are lots of community foundations out there that do DAFs. Um, I work with the Jewish Community Foundation. Mm -hmm. they've, they've worked with many of my clients who have really enjoyed them and they can even help you figure out where you want your money to go. They can give you advice. They can tell you about the charities that they support. And, and if you want to get super specific and find a charity that's, that does something, you know, really specific to, to your families, you know, what, where your, where your heart is, they can help you find that organization. And like I said, you can either make the contribution to the DAF now, or you can just set up the DAF and have it ready to be funded when you pass away. And then you can work with the community foundation to figure out who's going to be the governing board for that DAF. And if you don't have anybody, that's okay too. You can let the community foundation decide. So that's, that's I talk to all of my clients about DAFs. And DAFs are great because they can also operate alongside other charitable gifting mechanisms. None of the things that I'm telling you about today are mutually exclusive. You can mm -hmm. have lots of different gifting avenues going on at the same time. Another option is to form your own family foundation. Mm -hmm. One nice thing about doing the family foundation is that you don't have to, you're not restricted to giving money to other established charities like you are with the DAF. Right. So if you want to give scholarships to individuals, for example, you can do that with your own private family foundation. 
but then you do have to file a tax return every year for it. You have to apply for tax exempt status. There are strict rules regarding insider transactions. You might want to do some fundraising through it, or you might not want to do fundraising for it, but you should certainly have insurance to protect the board of directors in any event, no matter what you're doing. So it comes with these responsibilities that can sometimes be a nuance, but if you have, if, if, uh, uh, be annoying, I should say. But if you have a good team of people around you that can help you with all of that stuff, then okay, it's it's certainly doable. And I do a lot of family foundations for people um, who are looking to make major contributions. And by the way, you could even have donor recognition programs. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to put your name on a building, you can do that through a DAF just as easily as you can do that through a private family foundation. So you get, there's so many wonderful benefits to both, certainly, but less headache with the DAF than the Private Family Foundation. I think it's wonderful. Like your your two practices, your two areas of practices intertwining to each other so wonderfully. And I could see how, you know, some of you, you are thinking about things like the board of directors and things that people don't think about. You know, I was um, one of the, I, re- I was reading a book by, by a very wealthy individual that said one of the things that stuck with me was, you know, giving your money away is almost as difficult as making them and this you know he's like a, a very successful billionaire who's figuring yeah. out at the you know at his life like th- that part so some of the things you mentioned when talking about the DAF um, is the tax implications and that's one of the things that I that I that I wanted that I wanted to talk to you about now if you do a family foundation versus a DAF you said when you put the money in the DAF you're getting your you're getting your um deduction and then money Correct. stays there and goes there yeah. Is it similar with the family foundation? Are there uh, restrictions that changes because you are not giving, you may be giving to private individuals like a scholarship or things like that? Um, how, do, so, how do the two differ? So it, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily, uh, the deductibility is based on the type of organization that you're donating to. And because a DAF is under mm-hmm. the umbrella of a public charity, the donor yeah. can deduct for cash contributions up to 60% of their adjusted gross income each year. But right. if they're making contributions to a private family foundation, the deductibility for cash contributions is only 30%. Uh, Now, I don't know if your clients are donating more than 30% of their AGI every single year, but if they are, then a DAF is a better, uh, a greater deductibility uh, because you get the 60%, just like you would if you were making a donation to any other public charity. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. Now, as far as the, uh, you know, directing uh, the funds to, uh, to the specific causes that somebody may care about. Uh, do you do you find that one is more suited than the other one? Or if somebody has uh, only interest in donating to public charity, you can say, well, then a DAF is a no-brainer. But if you want to do something more complex, like scholarships and things like that, maybe you know a family foundation will be more suited. Is that kind of yeah, uh, the way it should exactly go? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly okay. right, yes. Um, and then you might be able to do some alternative investing if you have your own private family foundation. Um, and you'll work with your financial advisor to come up with a plan of investing the funds um, it, that makes sense from a risk standpoint. Obviously, mm-hmm. 
family foundations are not businesses. They can't have too much risk as part of an overall portfolio. But I'm setting up a foundation right now for somebody that wants to have cryptocurrency as part of the foundation's portfolio. There's okay. no there's no prohibition against buying cryptocurrency, but it just has to make sense as part of the overall investment plan and making sure that um, the risk tolerance is not going to be too great um, by just because they have this one investment that is a little bit on the risk. So there are no side. restrictions like there may be, you know, in a in a 401k or, you know, certain assets that you should not be investing in. There are no restrictions, but obviously common sense kind of governs the way that yeah, you want to Yeah, I mean, you're, you're not going to want to have any interest in closely held businesses. And in right. fact, one, one method of tax planning on the donor side um, is to do some type of charitable, either lead trust or remainder trust, a mm -hmm. charitable remainder trust, where you donate appreciated asset to the uh, trust, and then the trust applies for tax exempt status and then goes and sells it, and resulting in an income stream back to the donor, either initially or after the fact, depending upon how the trust is set up. So it is not uncommon where the the charitable entity receives stock in a closely held business and then turns around and sells it. Um, the charity doesn't pay the tax then, the capital gains tax on that stock. So it's a but you get that you get a charitable deduction and then the donor who owned that stock doesn't have to worry about um, paying the, the tax that they would have to pay if they were the ones selling it. Right. Um, so uh, this is not just about estate tax planning. Of course, really wealthy individuals love doing charitable planning as part of their estate plans to, to reduce the estate tax. They'd right. rather give it to charity than the government. Right. But with but with these types of charitable trust planning, mm -hmm. this is for people who have not necessarily a taxable estate, but who have income tax issues right. that come up and they have assets that have appreciated over time. And if and when they sell them, it would result so much of the tax that they would pay, you know, would would come off of the proceeds that it doesn't make sense for them to sell at all. But they can still reap some of the benefits of, of the tax of the sale by donating the appreciated asset to some kind of charitable trust vehicle. So I do that type of planning as well. That makes sense. I have two questions that are somewhat somewhat related to what we already discussed. One of the things is about when where somebody is in life, things change. You know, when somebody's planning their estate planning in their 30s, may have a desire to give a certain desire to give somewhat to charity, thinking that maybe they have children and things like that. So they don't really know when somebody's planning or adjusting their planning their 60s um, or 70s or whatever, they may have, you know, a different view. Uh, and so I guess my question in relation to that is how does somebody who's starting their estate planning in their 30s? So, you know, we're talking about the beginning of the journey of estate planning. Can they... Um, make the right steps so that they know, you know, like, well, I'm making this much money now, but I'm hopefully my estate will be considerably larger in yeah. 50 years from now. Uh, what are some of the things that you find the, the big difference in advising somebody who's starting out when the difference is somebody who's is the time is like, okay, now it's the time for giving. What are, what are the yeah. two 
the two ways that you guys. So, so this is where I, I like to talk to with the financial advisor because the financial okay. advisor is going to be able to work with me as a team and figure out a, a plan for charitable gifting if that's something that the client is interested in exploring because they're going to be able to determine how much they're going to need for retirement and what portion they're able to set aside for charitable gifting. And as morbid as this sounds, I plan, I do estate planning. My philosophy is what happens to your estate if, God forbid, you pass away tomorrow? Where would you right. want it to go? What would you want to happen? That's how I advise my clients to make decisions now. Right. And then if you don't pass away, great. Then in three or five years or however long you come back to me, we do an update. And, you know, estate planning is fluid. It is going to change every couple of years. And I mm -hmm. advise my clients to sit down and review their documents every three or five years and have at least come in and have a conversation with me about what has changed. And maybe then at that point in time, maybe they do want to explore some charitable gifting options. So then we update the plan to account for that. Just like you work with your financial advisor and your CPA to figure out what are the strategies? What are what what are the long-term planning goals? That's what you need to be doing with your estate planning attorney as well. And those goals are going to be fluctuating regularly. If you have minor children, mm -hmm. it's going to be a completely different conversation than if your children are grown adults and out of the house. True, true. Thank you for explaining that. Something else that I wanted to ask you is, in my experience, when I have sold, you know, I've sold real estate where all the proceeds go to charities. It has happened many, many times in my career. And some of the top, some of the charities that were involved, because it's interesting, because then they, you know, they, they also have to sign the documents and all of that. So that's a whole other thing. But some of the charities that I've dealt with are like St. Jude's Children's Hospital and, you know, Children's Hospital of Los Angeles and, and whatnot, you know, the American Cancer Society. It's just some examples. So, and the reason I, I, I was bringing that up, it's because I wanted to ask you, kind of pick your brain, in your experience, what are some of the charities that you are finding? Uh, obviously, you mentioned, you know, uh, the Jewish uh, charities that are available, but what are some of the uh, more popular choices that your clients are making when it comes to giving to charities? <clears throat> There are no popular ones. I work okay. with people who are giving to all different charities. Obviously, you're going to have like the major one, like the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, like in any given area or cause, you're going to have the major players. Yeah. But sometimes the clients say they already have enough. How do I find the smaller kind of mom and pop charities? How do I find them? Because I think that they need our support a little bit more. And that's where the DAF fund people can really help is, all right, you want to donate to some smaller organizations? Here's a list of 20 of them right. that we are aware of and who have are, are on the up and up in, in charities. If you don't want to give to like the Red Cross, that's okay. Mm -hmm. And lots of people do. And that's okay, too, of course. Right. So it's helpful to have somebody guiding you. But I don't have there are no like standard charities that I see time and time again in my clients documents. It really does change with every client that I do charitable planning for. I guess that goes to show, you know, how di diverse thing people are. Obviously, no, no two estate plans are the same, and by the same yeah. token, no two plans for for charitable givings are the same. So, um, yeah. thank you for explaining that as well. I wanted to ask you another question about um, generational giving. So, how can somebody ensure 
that, um, you know, that I am giving. And I also want to make sure that my children will be giving. And I want to make sure that their children will be part of the giving. Yeah. Um, so yeah. how, is, how is some of that planned um, in your practice? <clears throat> so, so I encourage my clients to get their children involved with charitable gifting from a very young age. Mm-hmm. You could even have a child take a dollar out of their piggy bank and say, all right, we're going to be making some donations and right. talking with them about that. And the repeating that on an annual basis with the kids. All right. It's the end of the year. We're going to, we're going to support um, a couple of charities where, what causes do you want to support and, if, and right. make them excited about it. Um, there are so many wonderful organizations out there that kids could even go and volunteer with. You could go, take them to food pantries, homeless shelters, um, and, and kitchens and, and have them roll up their sleeves and, and really see what it means to do charitable work and to help other people. And the, and the nice thing, as I mentioned earlier, either with a private foundation or a death is you could even have them be on the board. Mm-hmm. You could have them help in making decisions, see what it means to, to sit on a nonprofit board. And you don't, we don't, you don't have to put in a lot of money. You could put in a few thousand dollars right. and that's it. And that's fine. And you're going to say, all right, we're going to give a hundred dollars to this charity, a hundred dollars to that charity and, and get them involved with that decision-making from a very young age. That makes sense. That's very good advice. Um, another question that I wanted to ask you is what are some of the misconceptions that you run um, into with your practice when it comes to charitable giving? I don't know about charitable giving misconceptions, but I can tell you that a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to start my own family foundation and and it's going to run and it's going to be great and I'm going to raise all this money and I'm going to you know ask my friends for donations. And, and most ch- charities end up to either becoming defunct or they dissolve because mm. They, people don't realize how much work it is. It really is a full-time job. If you want right. to start your own foundation, if all you're doing is writing checks and putting your own money in, that's one thing. But if you actually want to make an impact in, on a larger scale and raise money from other people and then either operate, have your own programs mm-hmm. or donate to other charities who have programs, that's a big time commitment. And that's where, again, I'm going back to the DAF. And the the ironic thing, I keep pr- pushing the DAFs. There's nothing for me. In, in, <laughs> I don't get any legal fees when somebody goes and sets up a DAF. I talk myself out of people hiring me on a daily basis. I tell so, them, you don't want to do a foundation. Go do a DAF. I'm I'm telling you, some of the best professionals do that, and that's just a testament to to how committed you are to to the interest of your clients. And, thank you. and, and thank you for that. <laughs> Let's talk about your journey now, because it's so fascinating, and it's been such a pleasure learning about um, your wealth of knowledge in this subject. Tell us, um, your father is an attorney. I know that. So I guess in your family there was there there was the law bug going around. But what made you decide? Uh, was that the primary, was that what drove you to decide to go to law school? Definitely, definitely okay. was. Um, I I had always looked up to my dad growing up and he mm-hmm. has, and to this day, he's still just one of the most proud attorneys that I know. He really takes pride in being an attorney and the work that he does. And he had always kind of encouraged me. I mean, not, not 
he wasn't pushing me, but he just would talk about how great it is to mm-hmm. be an attorney. And so, and I do that now with my kids too, by the way. <laughs> and, awesome. and so when I graduated college, um, I was just kind of like, well, now what? And I didn't, I, I thought, oh, maybe I'll work in entertainment, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, that was also kind of a natural path for me. Right. And when I was in college, I interned at Miramax Studios and at Agency of the Performing Arts. Mm-hmm. And I realized it wasn't for me. I'm not cut out for the entertainment industry. <laughs> I'm too nice. So then <laughs> I said, well, I guess I'll apply to law school. And I got a scholarship to the University of San Diego that I couldn't turn down. And when I graduated law school, and law school was wonderful for me, mm-hmm. by the way, I really loved it. And when I graduated, it was 2009. It was the height of the recession. Right. And nobody was getting job offers. And my dad said to me, I'm so busy right now. I could really use your help in the office. Would you join me? And I was thrilled to have a job offer. And I think deep down, we both knew that that's the path that I would take. And he had always been a sole practitioner. So I was his succession plan. And we worked together for a few years And he would bring me in on every meeting. I sat in on every telephone call. I drafted every document right from day one. And I had real hands-on training and mentorship that you don't get it as an associate at a firm. And then eventually over time, I got to know all the clients. And so, and I still get calls from my dad's clients who say, your dad did our estate plan for us 20 years ago. We need to do an update. Can you help us? So even the clients that I haven't met, it's never changed the phone number. It's still the same line. Um, And then I, I get a lot of business too, just from my own networking. And I work with a lot of young couples and families um, like you and me who are setting up their estate plan for the first time. And I walk them through that process. I do a lot of hand holding and explaining to them, but, but, but my dad really instilled in me the, the, the best way to practice law is to be the kind of lawyer that you would want representing you if you were a client. And that means always being responsive, answering calls and emails as soon as possible. I never even wait a day before getting back to people. And that's, that's always what I carry with me as I continue on. Now, I still give my dad things to do when he's <laughs> bored and when I'm super busy in the office and he enjoys doing that. So we're still kind of working a little bit together. But I I, ha- I did take over the practice a number of years ago. That's great. That's great. And when it comes to the practice areas, so I'm, I'm kind of interested. How do you join? Because um, was it? Was your dad practicing exactly the same way as you are now? So was he doing nonprofit and estate planning as well? He was and real estate and business law too. And I don't, okay. I, I, that was just too much for me. I'm focusing on the estate planning and the nonprofit. So when those real estate or business matters come in, I, I still hand those off to him. <laughs> but what happened was he was working and he was a partner at a firm in Century City for many years. And then he decided to open up his own practice. Mm-hmm. And I think I was like a year old or something like that when he did that. 
And he thought it would be a great idea to carve out a niche for himself by mm -hmm. doing nonprofit law. There's very few attorneys who do it. Right. And so he, he did that. And he, he was actually, he had dabbled in it a little bit when he was in law school, he formed, he was, he went to law school at UCLA and he formed an on-campus nonprofit organization that is still around today. Oh, wow. He's been practicing law for over 50 years. And somebody wow. from this organization <laughs> reached out to him recently and said, thank you, Marshall, we're still around. And we remember that you were the one who did the paperwork for us. That is wonderful. That is wonderful. Well, I like to end all my shows with with a, with a little bit of a fun exercise. I have a I have a list of uh, thirty questions, and I want you to pick a number so you're responsible for the question that I'm going to ask you. So, please, Heather, pick a number between one and thirty. Okay, I'm going to have to go with my lucky number seven. Lucky number seven. Okay, what sound or noise do you love? Uh, when my kids are talking, I just love hearing them talk to me. I know that that's cheesy, but like they are adorable and just have the funniest things to say. And I could sit down and talk to them just for hours, but they're just the sound of their voices, that's <laughs> not, not screaming at, at each other. No. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's great. That is wonderful. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. You're such a delight. Um, before I let you go, um, you know, I want, I, I like to give, uh, um, what is that? We're going to have your contact information in our show notes, your firm's contact information. I would love for you to also tell our audience, what is the best way to reach you? Phone. I, 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 email's great, of course, but you can reach me quicker. I always answer calls first before I do emails and I pick up the phone if I'm not in a meeting. So give me a call. Okay. That's wonderful. Uh, Heather, thank you so much for all your, for your in incredibly insightful information that you share with our audience. And it's been a pleasure to have you on this show. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for joining. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Probate Realtor Show. Find more episodes and interact with us at probaterealtor.la. That's probaterealtor.la. Listen, ask questions, and get results. Don't forget to like and subscribe. The Probate Realtor Matias Baker Mazzucci is a licensed real estate broker in California DRE number 02054763. Any legal information provided is for informational purposes only and not for the purpose of providing legal advice. Contact an attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal issue or problem. We make no guarantees as to the accuracy of any information. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.